This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part one of five of Professor Hanko's series, God's Everlasting Covenant of Grace. There is nothing that is quite so pleasing to me as instructing the people of God in the knowledge of the truth of the scriptures. And that is especially true of the doctrine of the covenant. Doctrine of the covenant occupies a very special place in the thinking of every Protestant Reformed person I know. And it has ever since the days of my seminary training under Reverend Herman Hooksema occupied a very special place in my thinking. We discuss the doctrine of the covenant frequently in the seminary, of course. It was, as a matter of fact, and as you probably all know, Reverend Hooksema's favorite topic. There are three things that he said in connection with our frequent discussions of the doctrine of the covenant that have stuck with me over the years and that indicated to me and still indicate to me how important that doctrine was to him. I recall one time he was admonishing us on how to preach on the Heidelberg Catechism. And he said that the only proper way to preach on the Heidelberg Catechism is to preach on the Catechism from a particular point of view. Maybe he suggested from the viewpoint of the kingdom of heaven, maybe from the viewpoint of the objective truth of the Catechism as it is contained in the scriptures. But he said, if you follow my advice, as you should, there will come a time when you will want to preach on the Heidelberg Catechism from the viewpoint of the covenant and treat every Lord's Day and every doctrine that is discussed in the Heidelberg Catechism from the perspective of God's covenant. On another occasion, he was talking about the writing of his dogmatics, a great part of which he wrote in the years when I was in seminary. And he made the remark that he really had started writing his dogmatics a little too early. Or, if that were not true, had really started to understand more perfectly the doctrine of the covenant too late because if he knew at the time we were in school, if he knew earlier than that the truth of the covenant, he would have written his dogmatics in an entirely different way. He would have written them, he said, from the viewpoint of God's covenant. And he admonished us, if we ever had the opportunity and the inclination to develop a dogmatics from the viewpoint of God's covenant. On yet another occasion, he was telling us that God had been gracious to the Protestant Reformed churches and had given them a unique viewpoint of the doctrine of the covenant, which one could find nowhere else in the whole church world. And as I recall it, he was making those remarks in connection with the history of doctrine and the, the organic development of doctrine in the history of the church. And he admonished us as budding preachers and theologians that we should remember that if there was any development to take place in the Protestant Reformed churches after he went to heaven, it would be in the doctrine of the covenant. He said to us, I have not said the last word. 
by any means. And it's an obligation that rests upon you men to develop that doctrine more fully. And more particularly, and that caught me off guard and took me somewhat by surprise, if he said there is to be any development in the doctrine of the covenant after I am gone from this earth, it should be especially in the role of the Holy Spirit in the work of the covenant of grace. He showed by these remarks over the course of the three years we were in seminary that the doctrine of the covenant was very precious to him. It was, of course, the struggle of 1953 that took place in our churches during those years when I was in seminary. I started seminary in the fall of 1952 and graduated in the early, early summer of 1955. So we were with him in seminary in those years when the doctrine of the covenant held by the Protestant Reformed Church was challenged and when serious and concentrated efforts were made to rob our churches of that which was uniquely Protestant Reformed. That's the point I want to have you remember as we pursue our discussion of this doctrine throughout these classes. The Lord has favored our churches in a way that ought to be for every one of us humbling. It is not every denomination even that's faithful to God's truth which has the privilege of being used by God to develop a significant part of the truth of the scriptures. But that favor he has shown to us We are, as Protestant Reformed churches, Calvinistic. We are convinced of the truths of Calvinism. But that does not mark us as separate from many others, many other denominations and many other churches. There have been denominations before us which have been thoroughly Calvinistic. And there have been individual congregations scattered throughout the world who have maintained fiercely the five points of Calvinism. In fact, in this country, but especially in England, you will find in the history of the church there, Calvinistic Baptists. And even, especially in Wales, Calvinistic Methodists. To be Calvinistic is not any distinctive characteristic of a church. And although we are Calvinistic and we join with all other Calvinistic churches in our confession of Calvinism, that is not the body of doctrine that sets us aside, or if I may put it more concretely, Calvinism is not the body of doctrine that gives us as Protestant Reformed churches a right of separate existence as a denomination. If all we could say about the Protestant Reformed churches was that they were Calvinistic, then we would be faced with a concrete calling to join ourselves with other Calvinistic churches. What is unique about Protestant Reformed is to hold firmly to the doctrine of the covenant. That's distinctively Protestant Reformed. 
That is the doctrine that marks us as a separate denomination. That's a truth which gives to our churches the right of existence as a separate denomination. The Lord has done that. The Lord has given us that great favor to send to the fathers of our denomination and the theologians in our churches who have followed them and preceded us. The spirit of truth, which Jesus promised to the church in John 14, 15, and 16, which spirit of truth has worked mightily in our churches and has unfolded for the benefit of the people of God in our churches the great and glorious truth of God's everlasting covenant of grace. That's a favor. That's I would almost say a unique favor in this last century or two. And we must receive it from God as a special mark of his favor. All of this is not to say anything about the fact that the doctrine of the covenant has meant a great deal to our churches from a very practical point of view. I am personally convinced that the stability of our marriages and the sanctity of our homes and families are due to our emphasis on the truth of the covenant. I am convinced that our whole system of Protestant Reformed education is what it is today because of our deep commitment to and love for the truth of God's covenant. I am convinced that the Protestant Reformed churches are capable through the preaching to hold the line of the antithesis in a world gone mad with sin because the antithesis can only rest on the doctrine of the covenant. We have reaped untold blessings as churches. And that's why it's the burden of these discussions we are going to have, the Lord willing, in the next weeks to instill in your hearts some appreciation for what a great privilege the Lord has given to us and how urgent it is that we remain faithful to those truths. If you would ask me what is the very central doctrine of the covenant which is so important to us and which distinguishes us from all other denominations, I would answer without hesitation, the very simple and easily understood doctrine of the unconditionality of the covenant. I have in front of me here an editorial that appeared recently in the banner. It was the editorial, in fact, of the June 2006 issue of the banner. I understand, of course, the banner is the official publication of the Christian Reformed Churches. Christian Reformed Churches in their early history from 1857 on until the turn of the century were extraordinarily covenant-minded. Christian Reformed churches cherished the doctrine of the covenant and held it in high esteem, and in those circles too, the covenant bore its fruit. But the Christian Reformed church departed, as we all know, from the truth of sovereign grace in 1924 and adopted 
the doctrine of common grace, which vitiated the life of the church and the confession of the church and the truth of the covenant. Here is what has happened because of a loss of the doctrine of the covenant, described by editor Bob DeMoor. He is alarmed about a tendency in his denomination. And this is why, because increasingly Christian Reformed church councils are tilting toward a Baptist approach to baptism, allowing parents to have their children dedicated rather than baptized so that they can undergo believers' baptism when they reach the age of discretion. That's what's happening in the Christian Reformed Church. They're losing the sacrament of baptism, mind you. It stands at the very heart of the doctrine of the covenant as the sign and seal ordained by Christ. He's alarmed about that. He doesn't like that. Nevertheless, he finds the reason for that in the laudable motives of many church councils, laudable, praiseworthy motives of many church councils to accommodate parents who don't accept the biblical teaching that in the sacrament it is God, not we, who speak first. He urges on the churches to be patient with these people who are fundamentally baptistic in their thinking as they wrestle with the doctrine of infant baptism, we must show patience, humility, gentleness, love, etc., etc. But then he turns rather introspective and he asks, why is it that within our churches the doctrine of infant baptism is being lost? And wonder of wonders, this is the conclusion to which he comes. Not that the doctrine of the covenant has long been lost, but rather that the church has failed to practice infant communion. There's the problem, he said. If we would only begin to teach as we ought. That children, small children, belong at the Lord's table, then maybe we could preserve infant baptism as well. That's a sad state of affairs. That's our mother church, where the doctrine of the covenant was held in high esteem. I say the chief element is in the doctrine of the covenant, which we are at great pains to defend and maintain, is the doctrine of the unconditionality of the covenant. And that brings me to the story of the development of this doctrine in the history of the post-Reformation church. I'm going to be very brief about this, but there is an intriguing element about the history of the doctrine of the covenant in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, which will, I think, if we have some understanding of it, give us a deeper appreciation for our position. While the doctrine of the covenant was mentioned from time to time in the, in the early church fathers. It was lost entirely when the Roman Catholic Church gained the ascendancy and corrupted the truth of the scriptures altogether. It was a doctrine that was not regained and really not in any significant way developed until the time of the Reformation. It was developed at the time of the Reformation, however, not by Martin Luther. Lutherans have no covenant consciousness. And not even so much by John Calvin, surprisingly enough, although he had a lot to say about the covenant in his institutes. But the doctrine of the covenant first began to develop, be developed by theologians of the Reformation in Switzerland where especially Swingley and Bullinger did their work. 
If you want to trace back the origin of the doctrine of the covenant, you must go to Swingley and Bullinger. They developed the doctrine of the covenant over against especially the error of Anabaptism. Anabaptism rose early in the Reformation. And Anabaptism, as the term itself means, as the term itself means, rebaptism. Infant baptism is wrong. Infant baptism is contrary to the scriptures. Believer's baptism is the only thing. And so the Anabaptist movement began with the rebaptism of some of the men who had previously been baptized in infancy but who considered that baptism invalid. It was against these Anabaptists that the Swiss theologians began to develop the doctrine of the covenant. They did that interestingly because they saw that a biblical doctrine of the covenant was absolutely essential to the doctrine of infant baptism. It is impossible to maintain the doctrine of infant baptism except on the basis of the doctrine of the covenant. But in those days, of course, they didn't speak English. And for some reason, the term that was used for covenant in those days when Latin was the universal language was a term foidus. I'll put that on the board a moment. The Latin term foitus was used to designate covenant. One wonders why the Lord in his providence directed the church in that direction because of the fact that the term foitus of all things means Agreement or pact or treaty even. And that's where all the problem arose. Because of the use of the term foitus as the term to designate the covenant, the covenant from the very outset was defined in terms of its being an agreement or a pact. Now, that's really the origin of this fundamental truth of an unconditional covenant. Because if the covenant is considered, and we're going to be talking about this a bit more later, but if the covenant is to be considered as an agreement or a pact, it cannot be considered as anything else but conditional. An agreement implies by virtue of the term itself. Two people who meet together and who over, after discussing at great detail certain aspects of the problems that separate them, come to an agreement together, each contributing his own wisdom, his own willingness to cooperate, his own understanding of the situation, his own willingness to compromise in the interests of reaching an agreement. And so you have a covenant which is two-sided and a covenant which is in the nature of the case conditional because if two people agree to certain terms in order to establish peace between them, then that can only be on the basis of the fact that both remain faithful to the stipulations and provisions of the agreement. That meaning of the term dominated covenant thinking all the way from the Reformation to the beginning of the Protestant Reformed churches. There were those who talked about the covenant as we do today as a bond 
even a bond of fellowship. This was characteristic, for example, way back in 1560s of Caspar Olivianus, one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. He already spoke of the covenant as being a bond of friendship, but he never really made that the heart of his covenant theology and always fell back upon the idea of the covenant as an agreement in his own covenantal thinking. Same thing is true of Hermann Bavink. There are suggestions in Hermann Bavink's reformed dogmatics of the covenant as being a bond of fellowship, rather strong suggestions of it. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised that Reverend Hermann Huxema, who was a, a student of Bavink, not in the real sense of having studied under Bavink in the Netherlands, but who read avidly Bavink's theology and was influenced by him, maybe got his first ideas of a covenant as a bond of friendship from Hermann Bavink. If you go back earlier, the same was true of the theologian, the Dutch theologian Coxeus, who taught in the University of Franeker. He too spoke from time to time of the covenant as a bond. But whenever it came down to it and the idea of the covenant was developed, always the theologians fell back on the idea of the covenant as an agreement between God and man. Now this created a tension in the church and created a tension in the development of covenant theology. If you read the theologians going all the way back to the time of the Reformation, then you will discover that, strangely enough, that tension manifested itself in this way. That if theologians, especially in the Reformed tradition, and now I speak of the Reformed tradition in distinction from the Presbyterian tradition, if the Reformed theologians in the Dutch Reformed tradition were strong Calvinists, or if more broadly they belonged to continental development of theology in distinction from the development of theology in the British Isles, and were strongly Calvinistic, you will discover in their theological writings that they never quite knew what to do with the covenant. Because when they emphasize the doctrine of Calvinism, which so frequently and so vigorously underscores the truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation, they saw that they could not fit in any logical, biblical way the truth of the covenant as an agreement between two parties if God is absolutely sovereign in the work of salvation. Francis Turretin, who taught in the academy in Geneva, is an outstanding example of that. You will not find a more reformed theologian, a more fervent defender of the truths of sovereign grace than Turretin. But he doesn't know what to do with the doctrine of the covenant. And so, if I may use an exaggerated expression, he pretty much relegated the doctrine of the covenant to a footnote in his theology. It didn't fit, and he was helpless to deal with it in the development of the truth of the scriptures. You can understand the impossibility of that, I'm sure. How can you fit an idea of a covenant as an agreement between God and man into a structure of theology that is so biblical that all the emphasis falls on the sovereignty of God in salvation. It can't be done. If you go to the other side of the picture and you read the theology of continental theologians who were covenantal theologians, as for example Hermann Witsius, They always fudged on the doctrine of sovereign grace. 
Because once again, if the doctrine of the covenant was a doctrine of an agreement between God and man, somehow or another to make it fit into the structure of salvation by grace alone required that one snip off the sharp edges of the truths of sovereign grace in order to make room for a doctrine of the covenant that reduced the covenant to an agreement between God and man. It's an interesting thing. So you were committed to one, or two, one of two positions. Either all your emphasis fell on the truth of the sovereignty of God and salvation, and the covenant, the doctrine of the covenant, was reduced to a footnote in your theology, or you became a covenantal theologian, but you had to fudge on the doctrines of grace because it didn't quite fit. And there had to be made room somehow in the structure of solid Calvinism for some work that man performs in the realization of the covenant. Because it is, after all, an agreement in which man participates. All of this idea of the covenant as an agreement came in to its, uh, came to its, what I should say, highest development in the theology of William Hines, professor of practical theology in the Christian Reformed Church while also holding the chair of professor of do uh, doctrine Reformed Doctrine in the college. Reverend Hooksman, in fact, studied under, under William Hangs himself, and so did my father, although for a very short time. My father had him for one semester of Reformed Doctrine in uh, Calvin College. I only want to read a few brief uh, excerpts from a book entitled Manual of Reformed Doctrine by Professor W. Hines. This was published by William B. Erdman's Publishing Company. It's a translation of a work which he wrote in Dutch. This translation was published in 1926. Hines understood, of course, that if the covenant was an agreement between two parties, then it was difficult to fit into the doctrine of the covenant the place of infants. How can infants make an agreement? How can they enter into an agreement with God before they come to years of discretion? And yet it was clear to Heinz that all the children of the covenant had to be baptized so as Heinz struggled with this concept of the covenant as an agreement and the place of infants in the covenant, he came to some startling conclusions. And I'd like to read just a few brief excerpts from his work to see how far Heinz went in order to understand how in the covenant salvation can be given not only to the elect, but also to the non-elect. That's a fundamental premise of Heinz. In the covenant, because baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant, and because all the children of believers are baptized, therefore God establishes his covenant with them all, elect and reprobate alike. Although Heinz refused to use the terms elect and reprobate in connection with the covenant, but all the children of the covenant. To understand how in the covenant salvation can be given, says Heinz, not only to the elect but also to the non-elect, we must bear in mind that there is to be distinguished a twofold imparting of salvation. A twofold imparting of salvation. Not a twofold salvation, one salvation, but a twofold imparting of it. 
He goes on to say, this is clearly a twofold imparting of grace. One through the giving of it and another through the application by the Holy Spirit. The first is that of the covenant of grace and of the gospel with its offer of salvation. And the second is that of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The first may be called an objective and the second a subjective imparting. In other words, all the children of the covenant are given salvation objectively. But whether or not they are actually to be given salvation subjectively depends upon their willingness to enter into the agreement which constitutes the heart and essence of the covenant. To agree before God to certain obligations, conditions, stipulations, etc. That's how he explained that. But then he comes to the question, very interestingly, it seems to us that there is scriptural evidence unmistakably pointing to an actual bestowing on the covenant members of a certain measure of subjective grace also. So that the subjective spiritual condition of covenant children is different from that of children outside of the covenant heathen children, for instance. And that's uniquely Heinz. He taught, in other words, that all the baptized children of the covenant are incorporated into the covenant, receive the blessings of the covenant objectively, and are even given subjectively grace. All of them which grace enables them to make their choice either for or against God's covenant. In another book I have here, this is a book by Yella Faber, entitled American Secession Theologians on Covenant and Baptism, published by Inheritance Publications in... Uh, I'm not sure about the date of public, 1996, so it's a relatively new book. Faber is talking about that very matter of common grace in the covenant, so that all the children of the believers who are baptized receive grace to make their choice for or against the covenant. He makes the point in the book that in Skilder's contact with Huxima, although Skilder himself originally held also to the doctrine of covenantal grace, Huxima at least had this much influence on Skilder that Huxima forced Skilder to abandon the idea of a general and common covenantal grace. Maybe that's true, I don't know. But, says Faber, in a very, very revealing statement, that's probably the only theological mistake which Skilder made in his lifetime. In other words, Skilder, in other words, Skilder should have held firmly to that Heinzian doctrine of common grace in the covenant which is, of course, if you stop to think about it, sheer Arminianism. Now, because this was the tension that existed in the church, Reverend Huxmo, when he was studying under Heinz in the seminary and was receiving instruction in Heinz's doctrine of the covenant, said to Heinz at the end of the uh, semester, Dr. Heinz, he says, I don't know what the doctrine of the covenant is, but you're wrong. It's not that. 
And so he proceeded from the early days of his ministry to give his attention to the doctrine of the covenant. And you will find the seminal ideas of his theology of the covenant in his book that he co-authored with Henry Danoff, Sin and Grace. What Huxima did, and to me, that's a marvel of the work of the spirit of truth. What Huxima did was re-examine the idea of the covenant. He saw clearly that it was ultimately impossible to combine in a logical, biblical, confessional system of doctrine. The idea of the sovereignty of grace in the work of salvation and the covenant as an agreement between God and man. That was forever impossible. You can't do it. You may want sovereign grace, but then you can't have a conditional covenant. You may want a conditional covenant, but then you cannot have sovereign grace. Huxma saw that in order to escape that impossible dilemma and to get rid of the tension that existed in the Reformed churches, the only way to do that was to take another look at Scripture and its teaching of what the covenant really was. And when Huxma did that and examined the biblical data, and I presume read Olivianus and Coxeus and Bavink. He began to see that the whole biblical doctrine of the covenant never had anything to do with an agreement or a pact or a treaty of any kind. That it was a perversion of the covenant to begin with. That the idea was pulled out of thin air. That it had no biblical basis and that certainly in the Reformed confessions there was nothing at all which suggested that. And I'm not only talking now about the three forms of unity, but the minor confessions as well, particularly the form for the administration of holy baptism, which is our, one of our most beautiful liturgical forms. And in searching the scriptures, it began to dawn on him that the whole of the scriptures were full of the fact that though the covenant was not by any stretch of the imagination an agreement between God and man, it was instead a living bond of friendship and fellowship between God and his people in Christ. And if once you took that perspective on the doctrine of the covenant and you approached all the teachings of Scripture from that viewpoint, then everything fell into place. No more tension, no more disharmony, no more contradiction, no more inability to mesh the truths of sovereign grace with the truth of God's everlasting covenant. How is that? Well, if the covenant is a bond of fellowship and friendship between God and his people in Christ, number one, it's a one-sided covenant, not a two-sided covenant, as an agreement has to be by definition. So that God is the author of the covenant, God is the creator of the covenant, God is the one who establishes the covenant and God is the one who maintains it and perfects it in the great day of Christ's coming so that it all is of God. Then you have something into which fits beautifully the doctrines of Calvinism. Election and reprobation. The covenant is established with those who are electing Christ from all eternity and the lines of election and reprobation cut right through the covenant, creating Jacob's, but also Esau's. 
The doctrine of limited atonement is protected because the judicial foundation of the covenant is the cross of Jesus Christ, where all the blessedness of the covenant is earned. And in the incarnation itself, God become flesh. God and his people are united in Christ into the one body of Christ and live with him forever in covenant fellowship. Then you can maintain solidly total depravity. No common grace to ease the horror of total depravity, to mitigate the seriousness of it, to give to man after all some kind of a free will by a common grace, so that the choice is eventually his and his alone, No, absolute, total depravity, so that the establishment of the covenant is the work of God by grace alone. No resistible grace. Common grace is always resistible grace. But irresistible grace because God sovereignly works his salvation in the hearts of his people and preserves them until the very end. It all fits. It's all so beautiful. It all forms such a perfect whole. All the problems of the past 400 years were solved. Now that is, I submit to you, an astonishing insight into the truth of the covenant. And that is the heritage of our Protestant Reformed churches. Don't you ever minimize it. That God should use our forefathers in our own denomination, prodded by the apostasy of the three points of common grace, to see through the guidance of the spirit of truth such a remarkable insight into the truth of the covenant can only be explained in terms God's gracious dealings with us. Now even apart from that, and I say this by way of parentheses, even apart from that, why in the name of all that's holy and right would anyone in his right mind want to exchange The doctrine of the covenant is a bond of friendship between God and his people in Christ to an agreement. An agreement is cold. An agreement calls to mind people sitting at a table bargaining together. An agreement is mechanical. An agreement has to be signed when the proper documents are drawn up. What's appealing about that? If the covenant is an agreement between God and man, there isn't anything attractive about it. There isn't anything that appeals to the sensitive, believing heart of the people of God. But if you have a doctrine of the covenant that speaks of friendship with God, living with him intimately, walking with him. Then you have something warm, something alive, something pulsing with life. Something that fills the heart of the child of God with unspeakable joy. God, my friend, my friend. In all of life and into all eternity, My friends, so that the most intimate of all earthly relationships can only express the closeness of my life with God. We are married to each other. Who wants an agreement when he has that? Not I. Not I. 
All right, now I want to begin a new phase of our discussion, and we're going to talk about this just briefly tonight because our time is nearly up. There was another outstanding characteristic of the theology of Hermann Huxma. I talk about it briefly in my book, For Thy Truth's Sake. And I want to underscore for a moment what I wrote there. If you could say one thing about all the theology of Hermann Huxema that characterized it from beginning to end, it was the fact that in all his theology, whatever doctrine he was talking about, he began with God. That's always characteristic of a solid, reformed theologian anyway, you know. When Calvin did his work in Geneva, although his enemies said it mockingly, they said of Calvin, he was drunk with God. I can't really think of anything nicer to say about a man than that. They meant it cruelly. Drunk with God. God intoxicated. You could say the same thing about Huxema. The motto of those men was the last verse of Romans 11. And it was the principal starting point of all their theology. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. If you want an outstanding proof of the fact that theology, the doctrine of God, God himself is the starting point of all theology, then just read his chapter on the attributes of God. Whether he's talking about the incommunicable attributes, so-called omnipresence, omniscience, eternity, etc., or whether he's talking about the communicable attributes, grace and mercy and love and peace, he always starts with God. First question he asks when he discusses grace is this. What is grace in God? When he discusses even justification by faith alone and the concept of righteousness, his fundamental question is, what is the righteousness of God? And only when you start there and understand it and apprehend what the scriptures teach concerning these things. Can you get around to discussing them as these attributes are also found in man, whether Adam before the fall or redeemed man who is conformed to the image of Christ? That was always his theology. Things always begin with God and things always end in him and all things are always about him. I emphasize that because this is true also of the doctrine of the covenant. Where did Uxma begin in his doctrine of the covenant? With baptism? No. With a place of infants in the covenant? No. With man's role in the covenant? No. With God. And when I say he began with God, I don't mean to say that he began with God in the sense of insisting that the covenant of grace is the work of God alone. I mean more than that, and Huxima meant more than that. Huxima meant to say, and does at length say, and in detail say, in his reformed dogmatics and triple knowledge. The only way to come to a correct understanding of the covenant is to understand that God himself in his own divine being by virtue of who he is is a covenant God. That's where you have to start. I know that sounds like a discordant note in today's ecclesiastical world. 
where all anybody ever talks about is man, 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 man. What must man do and what does man do and what's good for man and how is man blessed? And we so easily fall into those traps as well, you know, that our thinking becomes man-oriented. And so when we leave church on Sunday morning and we talk together about the worship service, then we say to each other, what did you get out of it? What did you get out of it? Were you blessed by the sermon? Sorry to ask that, I suppose. That isn't the question. Was God glorified? Did the congregation praise God? That's their reason for coming together. The anthropological, man-centered theology of our day has its effects upon us. And it has its effects upon our personal life and our personal relationship with God because we are always very, very concerned in our lives, in our prayers, too. How does God deal with me? Does he deal with me in a way that makes me happy? Does he deal with me in a way that I think I perhaps deserve? Or does he deal with me in seemingly heartless and cruel and difficult ways? That was the one lesson Job had to learn, you know. Job, as he sat on his pile of clinkers, cinders, scraping his boils, desperately pleaded with God, let me ask of you just this one simple question. That's all I want to know. Why do you do this to me? Just tell me why, and I'll bear it. But says Job, I look for him in front of me and I can't find him. And I turn around and look behind me and he's not there. And I look to the right and he hides himself. And I look to the left and he's occupied with other matters and pays no attention to me. What was God's answer to all of that? When God finally spoke to Job in the whirlwind, God's answer to Job was in was this, basically. Who in the wide world, Job, do you think you are? That you can call me down into your witness stand and quiz me and subject me to your questioning so that I must give an account to you of what I do. I don't have to give an account to anyone of what I do. I'm not under any obligation to explain to you why this is your lot in life and why it isn't any different. I'm God. That's all. I'm God. And you are nothing but a creature. And you better remember that because that's going to determine all your relationships with me. And then you read, And Job humbled himself in dust and in ashes before God. Theology is the doctrine of God. All of theology, whether it's the doctrine of creation or the doctrine of man or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of the last things or the doctrine of the sacraments, is the doctrine of God. That's where we always have to start, not only in our theology, but in our daily lives, in our everyday walk with God as his covenant people, in our dependence upon him and our need of him. He's God. And so that's where Huxma began when he began to talk about the doctrine of the covenant. And he said... Here's where we must start. God is in himself a covenant God. 
Now there already you have something astonishing and wonderful because now you're going to be dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three in persons. I used to dread the time when I was first in the ministry and I came to Lord's Day 8, the doctrine of the Trinity. How in all the world am I going to preach on this? It's so profound, it's so difficult to understand, it's so distant a doctrine. How can I make it warm and living for the people of God? So that they say at the end of a worship service, the doctrine of the Trinity means something to me. And only after much struggle did I remind myself of what we had learned in seminary. God is in himself a covenant of God. That means all sorts of things, and I'm not going to enumerate them anymore this evening, but it means in the first place that God is not a covenant God because in some mechanical fashion somewhere back in the distant reaches of eternity, God decided to enter into fellowship with himself. That God is a covenant God means that by virtue of who he is. And I hope you understand what I mean by virtue of the fact that he is one in essence and three in person. He is a covenant God. He is that. When God establishes his covenant with... Let me use another figure. Maybe that'll be a little clearer. The Bible tells us that when a man and a woman are married together, they become one flesh... That's a mysterious thing. Even Paul admits that and says, this is a mystery. I speak concerning Christ and his church. But it is true in a profoundly spiritual sense of the word, and yet there's my wife and here I am. And you say, one flesh? Well, because of the fact that marriage is imposed on us, or imposed on us it's by our choice, of course, but I mean it's an institution into which we enter. God, in the fellowship which he lives in his own divine being, doesn't enter into it. He is in himself a covenant God, both because he's one in person and three in essence. He is one. The possibility, the reality of the fact that the three persons of the Holy Trinity live together in Fellowship with each other is rooted in the fact that they are one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And that very oneness and unity of the divine essence is the unity of the covenant fellowship which the three persons within the Trinity enjoy by virtue of his eternal being as triune. God is a covenant God who lives in covenant fellowship with himself. That even gives to the doctrine of the Trinity something warm and something vibrant and something that we can get a hold of. God is a family God. In some sense of the word, the great prototype of our families, father and son. God lives with himself in perfect bliss, something of the prototype of a husband and wife and the riches of a marriage when they are united in Christ. And so it gives to the covenant as it is in God that which is vital, that which is pulsing with the life that we crave and covet. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful unto thee for the riches of thy blessings, especially upon us as churches.
Thou hast not only given us an important place in the history of the church of all ages and an important work to do that continues until the present in the glorious development of the truth contained in the Holy Scriptures and in our Reformed creeds. But thou hast preserved us in that truth all these many years. We confess readily before thee that we are not worthy of such blessings as are given to us. How many times in our history as churches we have forfeited all claim to thy blessing. And how many times have not we in our own lives forfeited by our wicked deeds the great blessing of being a part of thy covenant. Thy mercy is without end. Thy grace is ever towards us. Thy faithfulness is beyond finding out. And we bow and worship in adoration of thee with hearts that are overflowing with gratitude. As we pursue our study of this great truth of thy covenant, Lord, guide us in it that we may understand more fully and more richly that which thou hast revealed in the sacred scriptures and grant unto us a deep and abiding love for that truth that we may give it to our children and impress upon them the glory of it and teach them to be faithful to it. Graciously pardon the sins we have committed against thee, and be merciful to us for thy name's sake. We pray for Christ's sake and for the merits which he earned for us, and who is our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.